God's Word comes to us this morning uh, from the Old Testament, from the, the record of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7. So if you turn there in your pew Bibles with me, uh, we're going to read just the first uh, 15 verses here. We'll take account of uh, some of the rest of the chapter, but our focus will be primarily on those first 15 verses, Jeremiah uh, chapter 7. Beginning here at verse 1, Jeremiah 7, we read, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come? And stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your forefathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. We're going to end our reading of God's Word there uh, this morning. Well, friends, I read recently uh, as I was preparing for this sermon that, that 68% of Americans hold on to some form of superstition. That's rather high. 68% of Americans uh, believe that by uh, saying some sort of phrase or holding some sort of belief or, or taking some sort of action will give them either good or bad luck. Superstition is remarkably common in our society. And, uh, we see it among Hollywood actors and we see it among stockbrokers and perhaps especially among professional athletes. I read about one particular retired baseball player uh, who loved to um, 
chew licorice and brush his teeth between each inning of a baseball game. That was his superstition. He never won a World Series, though, so apparently that superstition didn't pay off very much. But that's, in fact, the case for many people. Most people don't know if or why their superstitions help them at all, Um, but they hold on to it anyway. It's a security blanket for them. It, it provides some sort of comfort, some sort of false assurance. Well, in our passage this morning, we discover that God's people, the people of Judah, have developed for themselves a superstition of sorts. They have adopted a superstitious trust in the temple, in their religious system, so to speak. But all the while, they have fallen into what might be called a covenant complacency. All the while they put their trust in the temple, they have actually rejected the God who's made His covenant with them. All the while they put their trust in the temple, they are actually failing to worship God in the way that pleases Him with with genuine hearts of love and gratitude to Him. And they've, they've turned the temple and their temple worship uh, into little more than a lucky charm uh, to ward off evil. And they believe this deceptive idea that as long as they remained close to the temple, as long as they continued doing their sacrifices, as long as they used the symbols and they were involved in the activities of temple worship, as long as they went through the motions, they were safe. They were secure. They were safe, they thought, to sin. And so when Jeremiah comes to them at the command of the Lord and he preaches to them and he says, you need to change your ways, they respond and say, oh, Jeremiah, come now. This is the temple of the Lord. It's the temple of the Lord. We're here. We're we're doing all the things that we ought to do. We're fine. Don't worry about it. See, Israel trusted in the material buildings. They trusted in the rituals, the traditions, the habits, and they forgot that what God required of them was living sacrifices with contrite, obedient hearts. And so their love for God wasn't sincere. Their worship was merely outward. It wasn't genuine. And God comes to them in this passage, in this word from Jeremiah, to expose this foolish superstition this self-deception, this covenant complacency that they'd fallen into. And he would call them to see, just as he calls us this morning, to see that we are not safe to sin as the people of God. We are not safe to hide away in this blessed covenant context while harboring sin or insincere devotion before God. We are saved by Christ to offer lives of genuine worship, genuine devotion. I want to spend some time primarily this morning looking at Jeremiah's shocking sermon, and then we're going to look at God's sufficient Savior. But before we look more closely at the content of Jeremiah's sermon, I want you to notice something about the way that he preaches to the people of Judah. It's a rather unique, it's a rather shocking method that Jeremiah uses when he preaches to the people of Judah because God calls Jeremiah to go and to stand at the gate of the temple and to proclaim a message of repentance. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to go to the doors of the temple, the entrance to the temple, 
and I want you to call the people to change their ways. Now, just think about how unusual that was. Think about it in, in modern terms. How would that look today? You, you pull into the parking lot, you get out of the family van, and you walk up to the church entrance, and there's Reverend Niemeyer. And he's standing at the door leading into church, and he's waving his arms, he's yelling at the top of his lungs, and that's pretty loud. And he's saying, you need to change your ways. You need to amend your ways. You need to turn back to the Lord and repent. And he's telling you this as you're going into church. And you probably think he's finally lost it. He's been kicked one too many times in the head during Taekwondo class. Because after all, Reverend Niemeyer, we're going into church. Right? We're, we're doing what we should be doing on Sunday morning. We're going into worship. What's the problem? How can you call us to, to repent and change our ways when we are doing the very things that, that God has commanded of us to do? And so you see, the way in which God called Jeremiah to preach to the people of Judah was rather shocking in itself, but it's strategic. It gets to the heart of the problem, that though the people appeared to be going through all the right motions as God's covenant community, in fact, their hearts were very far from God. That's why Jeremiah preaches, to bring them back, to call them back to heartfelt, obedient worship and living. And so we see a couple things here in this sermon uh, by way of calling them back to obedient, heartfelt living and worship. He says to them, first of all, several times here in verse 3, as well as in verse 5, he says, you need to amend your ways. You need to change your actions. Well, what had they been doing? First, as I noted, um, the people of Judah believed this deceptive, superstitious idea that they were basically safe in and around the temple, and they could do whatever they wanted. Now, it's important to pause for a moment and remember where we are in Judah's history. Uh, what's going on in uh, this narrative here? Well, this event, this sermon of Jeremiah takes place uh, before exile, before the Babylonians have come to take the people into exile and destroy Jerusalem and cast them out of their land. Exile hasn't happened yet for the people of Judah. The threat is certainly there. Uh, the fear should be there. But what, what has already taken place? What has already taken place are the reforms under righteous King Josiah. You may remember Josiah. Uh, he was a, one of the good kings, and it was during his reign that the law of God was rediscovered. And King Josiah issued great reforms in all of the nation to try to call the people back to their God from their idolatry. Remember that the law was read to all the people. There was widespread confession of sin and repentance. That's what had taken place already. And yet here we are again. Here we are. The people have gone back to their evil ways. They have gone back to their idolatry, to the worship of false gods, and they've adopted this silly belief this foolish, deceptive notion that the temple, that Jerusalem itself was impenetrable, that there was no army that could get in there. They were safe, but the problem was that the people thought that they were safe to do all sorts of abominable things before the Lord. They could entertain all sorts of impurity right under God's nose. 
we're safe, the people thought. As long as we perform our sacrifices and and properly order our worship, we're safe. And the first thing that Jeremiah preaches to them to to condemn is this, this false idea that they are safe to sin before the Lord. And we learn in the rest of this, uh, this text what kinds of problems, what kinds of sins they were entertaining. We learn in verses 5 through 6 that they were failing to execute justice. They were oppressing the sojourner, the visitor. They were oppressing the fatherless and the widow in their midst. And Jeremiah says, that's particularly egregious because you, Israel, you used to be Uh, the subjugated ones. You were weak. You were disabled. You were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord graciously rescued you. You ought to be showing the same kind of generosity and love to protect the, the disabled and the weak among you. But they had forgotten. They had become a den of thieves. So great was their sin that uh, later on here in verses 9 through 11, uh, we learn that the people had come to worship false gods. Widespread idolatry was a problem in Judah. And again, Jeremiah says, this is so inappropriate. You're worshiping gods you haven't even known. Gods that haven't done anything for you. Gods that are no gods at all. They're simply made of wood and stone and, and gold and silver. They're dead. And yet you've turned after them. You've offered sacrifices to Baal, but you've rejected the Lord of glory, the God who actually knows you, who made you, who called you out of slavery into the light of His covenant and and His blessings in Israel. All of these violations of God's law flowed from their false worship, their hypocritical devotion to God. And with all of that in mind, Well, with all of these violations in mind, the Lord comes to them with a very shocking question through Jeremiah. Look at this question in verse 9 and 10. He says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, we're safe only to go on doing all these abominations? The Lord says, I'm not blind. I've been watching. I see that although you've been going through all the right motions, your hearts are far from me. Will the people get away with it? Absolutely not. And God says, I'll prove to you that I've been watching. I'll prove to you that my house, my temple is not impenetrable to attack. And he says through Jeremiah to the people, uh, take a road trip. Take a road trip. Take a trip and go look at Shiloh. He promises that he will do to Jerusalem, to the temple in which they trusted, he will do to that what he had done to Shiloh. What was Shiloh? You might remember it's the place where God's worship took place before King David set up Jerusalem as the location of the temple and the capital city. But if the people took Jeremiah's advice, if they gathered the kids together and took a road trip to Shiloh, it wouldn't be much fun because there wasn't much to see there. 
because Shiloh had been torn down. All they would have seen was a pile of rubble there because it had been destroyed probably by the Philistines in the 11th century. Why had Shiloh been destroyed? Because the people of God had forgotten their Lord. They too had turned to idolatry. They too had adopted the gods of the pagan nations around them. They too had had begun to worship falsely without heartfelt obedience and zeal for the holiness of God. And so the Lord showed them that His temple was not impervious to attack. His people, if they did not repent, would likewise be cast out. If they didn't reform their ways, Jerusalem and its temple would become just like Shiloh, a pile of rubble. Judah would become like Ephraim before them. It had already gone into exile. So Jeremiah calls out in his sermon, you must repent. You must amend your ways. Your hearts must be made genuine before the Lord so that your actions in worship will be acceptable to Him. Then I will let you live in this promised land. But if you do not repent, you will be cast out. Destruction would be the consequence. How how do God's people respond? Well, the rest of the chapter uh, describes their response, and you know the story. Though the Lord spoke to them over and over again, calling them back to Himself, they would not listen. Because you see, the people thought, they believed that all the things Jeremiah was calling them to do, they had already done. Because they looked at their traditions and they looked at their practices and the sacrifices and their close association with the temple, and they said, Jeremiah, all that you have said, we are already doing. They didn't understand that what the Lord desires of His people is genuine lives of worship, that the sacrifices, that the outward acts of worship themselves weren't enough. They weren't sufficient unless they flow from a heart of obedience and faith. And John Calvin helpfully reminds us that throughout history, God has never so bound Himself to one particular people that He is not free to discipline them when they fall into grievous sin and error. And that's an appropriate warning for us as well. We as believers need to be very careful that that as we live in this gracious, uh, bountiful covenant context in which God has brought us, that we don't fall into the same error of thinking that we are safe to sin. We must not fall into the, the same error thinking that we can hide away in this wonderful place with a less than sincere, heartfelt devotion to God. He sees our hearts. And if there is any covenant complacency, it needs to be expunged. Israel was not safe to sin despite what they thought, and we are not safe either. To be sure, we have a wonderful set of habits as Christians, as Reformed believers. We have meaningful traditions. 
We take great comfort in our weekly calendar and our Sunday observance. We, we, we are blessed to worship in this beautiful building, which is so lovely and secure. We, we enjoy so many programs of this church. We, we support and send our children to Christian day school. We are part of Bible studies. Our young people attend youth group faithfully. But God would have us see that however valuable these things are, to our growth in the faith, to our spirituality as believers, no matter, no matter how beneficial they are, those practices alone are never an acceptable substitute for a genuine and active faith in the living God. Knowing about God through all of these mediums is never a substitute for actually knowing God in Jesus Christ having a living and true and active faith in Him. Merely going through the motions, outward religion only, is unacceptable to the Lord. And so whatever traditions, whatever um, the practices we enjoy here, they need to be examined from a heart of true devotion and faith. Because the genuine devotion that God requires involves the combination of right doctrine right practice, good traditions, but with a consistent godly life, with a passionate zeal for God's holiness and a passion to live our whole lives as an act of worship. God wants our whole heart. He deserves our whole service. Judah had turned God's house into a den of robbers, a house of thieves, They had fallen into covenant complacency, and so they had a great need. They had a great need for a perfect zeal, a perfect righteousness, a perfect holiness, a perfect passion for the rights and genuine worship of God that pleases Him. And here we are reminded that there is only one man whoever exhibited that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for the house of God, and that, of course, was our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's zeal for God's holiness, for His house, uh, was put on display in a wonderful way during His ministry. In John chapter 2, we learn that in Jesus' day, uh, the Jews' perspective on the temple was much like that of the Jews of Jeremiah's day. The Jews of Jesus' day had also turned the temple uh, into a den of thieves and a den of robbers. There were people coming to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, and they were being mistreated. They were being cheated. They were being overcharged. And the temple was filled with money changers and tax collectors. And into that environment, our Lord Jesus came to His Father's house, for which He is very zealous. And he asked, can this be worship? This profanity, this abomination going on in my father's house, can this be the kind of worship that pleases God? And we read that in righteous anger, in holy indignation, he took a whip of cords and and he drove the money changers out. He, He overturned the tables with a perfect zeal for the genuine, faithful worship of God. 
And later on, his disciples, when they looked back on that event in his ministry, they remembered how Jesus had fulfilled the words of Psalm 69, verse 9, which we read earlier. Zeal for your house, O God, will consume me. And indeed it did. The zeal for the Lord's holiness would one day result in Jesus' death on the cross, a death in which Christ bore the disgrace and the scorn and the abandonment and the shame that our sin brought upon Him. On the cross, Jesus exhibited perfect zeal for the holiness of God, and He fulfilled the words of David, because zeal for your house consumes me, the insults of those who insult you are on me. Christ, in His perfect zeal for God's holiness, for God's people and His house, He endured the insults. He endured death from those who would turn God's house into a den of robbers. He endured the insults. He suffered death on account of those who would live sinfully before God in a a manner unworthy of Him. And we are called, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to imitate Christ's zeal for the holiness of God. The Bible is very clear. Like Christ, we we are to be filled with grief when God's name is attacked. We are to be filled with a zeal for the obedience of God's Word. We are exhorted uh, throughout Scripture to imitate Christ. He calls us to devote ourselves totally to the advancement of His divine glory, to, to seek in all that we do, thought, word, and deed, to honor Him, to defend His glory, to be careful that our lives would not obscure His glory by our sin. But how could we possibly imitate the passion and the zeal of Christ for the holiness of God in His house? How could we possibly imitate the Lord of all glory? Well, hear me, it is not by simply adding to our agenda, adding to our calendar more churchly activities. It's not by adding to our our repertoire more outward demonstrations of holiness or piety. That's not how we become more Christ-like. It's by putting our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ and what He has already done for us in His own perfect demonstration of zeal for the holiness of God on the cross. You see, Christ's obedience granted to us by faith is the only thing that is able and sufficient and necessary to enable us to live genuine lives of worship before God. And we see that Christ has provided that by doing what the old covenant was never designed to do. The old covenant and all of its uh, sacrifices and religious acts could never provide the the obedience necessary to make us right with God. But Christ obeyed perfectly. He provided the obedience that we need to live righteously before God, and so we are called to put our trust in Him. We are brought to, to God through Christ's perfect act of zealous obedience. And that's why when Christ died upon the cross, What happened to the temple? 
What happened to the temple? What happened to, to the building and its sacrifices, its curtain, its lampstands, its ark, its symbols, etc.? All these things cease to exist because they never were an end to themselves. They pointed to something far perfect beyond themselves. They pointed to Christ, to the one who would exhibit perfect zeal, perfect worship before the Father by giving up His own life for our redemption. And through Christ's resurrection and ascension, we now receive His Holy Spirit so that Christ now establishes a different temple a better temple, a new temple, but it's not one made of mortar, wood, and stone. It's the temple of His church, made of spiritual stones, a temple, a sanctuary made without hands, and that's you, and that's me. We, the church, are the temple, the sanctuary of Christ. He dwells in us. He fills us by His Holy Spirit. And that's why His command to us is not to merely offer to Him outward practice. Going through the motions, He desires contrite, genuinely repentant, obedient hearts. To obey is better than sacrifice. He wants our worship to flow, not simply from our mouths, but from the depths of our beings. He wants us to offer tender and heartfelt, genuine worship of our whole lives. And so, brothers and sisters, by faith, cling to this God. Cling to Christ, His Son, and to His cross. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work within you, to cultivate within you the desire and the ability to live genuinely Christian lives. Pray to Him, asking that He will help you reject mere outward practice, mere religiosity to reject the, the deceptive and superstitious idea that this gracious context of the church is a place in which you can hide in sin. Turn to Christ. Look to Him and His obedience because He alone can give you the power to offer yourself as a living sacrifice of praise, holy, pleasing to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are aware of our tendency to think that by simply acting the part, by simply fulfilling the outward practices of the Christian faith, that that is enough. And we fall into that error of covenant complacency, often because we are far more concerned about what other people think of us than what you see in our hearts. But your word is very clear. As it comes to us this morning, your desire is for obedience, genuine obedience, worship that flows from true and faithful hearts that are zealous, that are passionate for your glory and your holiness. Lord, that should be our passion because we are your temple. We are the ones created by you as your indwelling to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to be controlled by Your Spirit. And so, Lord, we, we confess our sin. We ask that You would forgive us and ask that we would not be a den of thieves and robbers, but that we would be a community that is vibrant 
and faithful. May we be a, a community that each and every one looks to Christ, who exhibited perfect zeal for your glory. Lord, we confess our trust must be only in Him and His work. And we look to Him in faith. We trust that by Your Holy Spirit, You will enable us to make small beginnings as we grow into a community of zealous uh, worshipers. Lord, bless us now as we leave Your house. Uh, bring us back tonight to, to worship in the splendor of Your holiness, not simply uh, in motion only, not only by habit or, or tradition but with a sincere desire of our hearts, knowing that you see them clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.